G'day, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Australian Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Christie David. I'm a mortgage broking business called Atelier Wealth, and we specialize in helping property investors start out and scale up their portfolios. But in addition to that, we help a lot of home buyers get into the market. And home buying the great Australian dream is something that I think has been around for a very, very long time, which is some generations have thought it's unattainable. Others have just gone on with it, got into the market and done very, very well. As part of our podcast, what we like to do is bring in what I call best in breed. And today's guest epitomizes that and more. I'm going to say he's almost going to be blushing. Um, but if you have picked up a copy of the AFR, if you are any way, shape, or form reading about what's going on in the property market, you would have heard his name. Uh, Martin North, welcome to the show. Great to have you on here. Thank you very much. And uh, great to, to catch up with you. And, uh, you know, I share your interest in property and uh People sometimes say, oh, you're a property bear. No, I'm not. I'm just one. I'm a property realist, right? Yes. But it's really, really important that when people are actually thinking about property, whether they're buying, whether they're selling, whether they're investing, they actually make the decisions on the right basis. And that's what I'm all about. So sharing information, sharing ideas, but I'm certainly not um, anti-property. Yeah, perfect. And I, I feel like that's a really, really good place to start because if you read a lot of the work that you put out and media obviously has has one slant, for example, um, and it's, I guess it's eyeballs and it's headlines, for example, um, you could almost be pitched as a bit of a property bear if people don't go deeper. And I feel like deeper being the layers and the levels of content that you put out and uh, you see digital finance analytics is a, re- I'm going to say, would you pitch yourself as a research house or how would you, how would you describe <laughs> Um, what so, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because uh, there is primary research underpinning all that I do. Right? Yeah. So so we survey households and we survey businesses continually. So we have um, a 0.5% sample in our in our database and we sample every week and we actually understand both qualitative and quantitatively what people are doing. But once I've actually got the data, I also do a lot of modeling and analytics. And then I also provide information to a number of individuals and uh, corporates on what's going on. Yeah. And I also do a lot of uh, media stuff as well, education and trying to help people make better decisions. So it's yeah. sort of a bit of an ecosystem, but it does start and end with with the data. And what I get frustrated about is all of this averaging you know, property prices in Sydney dropped by on our five percent in the last quarter, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. What you want to understand is that some property prices went up, some went sideways, some went down, and so you've got to actually go granular. And so I keep coming back to this fundamental point that averages mask. You have to go into significant detail to really understand. And if you're thinking of buying a property. Average is meaningless. You need to look at the particular property and look at the characteristics of the property and understand what's going on. So so we try to get granular, and then we try to actually think about what are the varying cross-currents that are actually influencing where property prices may be going, whether the returns are good, bad, whatever, right? But it's all about trying to actually move away from these averaging, you know, the the, the story of property prices always double religiously every seven years, right? Or, you know, or quadruple or whatever, go up 10 times, whatever. The point is, if you buy the right property, then you can make great returns. If you buy the wrong property, it's a dog, it will remain a dog. The question is, what makes a property a dog versus, you know, a star? And there are some fundamentally different characteristics, and that's what I try to get into using data to help inform. Perfect. So if you take that data, and you're right, there is a third dimension, which is that the actual property and the asset that you're buying. So how 
because I feel like numbers and averages and stats are 2D. You can look at the numbers and it's very yeah. static and it's, it's almost very rear view. And yeah. especially to get to an average, it's like, here's what's done in the past. So how do you then kind of bring that third dimension into it, which is, well, here's the differentiation between a property that's going to do well and here's mm-hmm. a property that may perform or has performed badly. And the dog and star analogy is a great one as well. So the point is that, that there, there's supply and demand, right? Yeah. So what is the demand? And you could go into a particular area. And what types of people are looking to buy? What types of property are they interested in? What are the characteristics of those people? So, for example, are they you know, affluent, that affluent? Are they going to need a mortgage? Are they not going to need a mortgage? How many of them are there? And what's mm-hmm. driving them to, 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 to look? So if you think back through post-COVID, we had a lot of people suddenly saying, oh, regional Australia looks really good because, you know, it, it's further away from the city. I can do what I want. Yeah. All bands better. So there's suddenly a big surge in demand, right? So that's part of it. Another act, uh, element, of course, is credit, credit availability, because one of the critical things people need to understand is that credit availability is by far the most critical driver of what happens to home prices. Yeah. So why are home prices falling at the moment? The reason is that credit availability is, is tougher, right? Partly yeah. because interest rates have risen. So your borrowing power is reduced. If you look at the worst case scenario, it could be down 30%. That's right. So that means you just can't reach for what you could reach for previously. So that's another element in that there might be somebody who wants to buy but can't buy because they can't get, get the credit. Yeah. Then, of course, there's the supply side. So what property is around? Is it good quality property? You know, is it facing the right direction? Does it have the right um, uh, context in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, local communities? Or is it really a bit of a dog in terms of, it? you know, it's poorly constructed? Are there defects with it? One of the things I find quite often is that people don't actually do enough due diligence when they think about a property. Right? So, so quite often, yeah. you know, things like asbestos, things like poor quality construction uh, or, 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 or an uncertified um, conversion, all of those things. Now, if you put the right elements together, so if you can find the right property in the right place at the right price with the right credit, and it ticks the boxes in terms of all those other characteristics, then potentially you have a star. But if you've got a property that's actually got defects in it, that potentially is going to spend uh, a lot of your hard-earned cash down the track just trying to maintain it, mm. if in fact the valuer comes in and says, no, 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 it's not worth that. It's worth a much lower amount because of, of these issues. Then you've got, a, you've got a dog. The problem is if you buy a dog on day one, it's really hard to convert it into a star. Sure, you might be able to knock it down completely and then and then rebuild it, but that often isn't you know a real option. Yeah. But if you've got a plot that's actually a weird-shaped plot facing the wrong direction with a major road outside, whatever you do on the plot, <laughs> you've still got a, a dog. Right. So so the, the point is you've got to go granular and you've got to understand the characteristics of individual properties, where they are, how they behave, which means doing a lot more research than a lot of people do. I'm really surprised, and well, you've seen this, but quite often people who do more research when they buy a new refrigerator, they go online and sort of compare and contrast relative to buying a property which is worth many times what a new refrigerator is. I'm afraid that people just are, maybe they're too trusting of real estate agents or maybe they don't do the transactions enough, frequently enough to really understand the architecture of the questions you need to ask. But quite often what you find is that people end up with making bad decisions 
over-influenced by what the real estate agents say quite often, and actually also caught up with the emotion of it That's exactly rather right. than actually going through the, the logical, methodical process. And, and, okay, the parameters will be different if you're looking from a property investment versus somewhere to live. But on both sides of that fence, there are critical questions that you've got to be asking. Excellent. And I think you just touched on it there, which is the emotional side of it, which is, it's tangible. For example, it's like, I can see myself living in here. There's issues that maybe come up in due diligence, like we can work around that. Um, or it's, it's a time in their life where it's almost necessity. And sometimes it's, we're being booted out of our rental property and we've got to find somewhere. And so now you're yeah. racing against the clock to find somewhere yeah. or it's buyer fatigue, which means we've been looking for six months. And if we don't find somewhere, we're going to be divorced rather than actually have a property to move into. Mm. As well. so, and again, you talk about borrowing capacities are at the mercy of what banks are doing. So effectively, what you can buy, where you can buy is, and the type of asset is almost dictated by a lot of external factors as well. Right. Yeah, perfect. You've touched on the research part. And it's almost like this is this gold algorithm that you want. <laughs> it sounds like you've built. So take me through uh, the analytics, for example, when you're talking about. So here's the variables that are going to kind of yeah. um, produce dog V star, for example. How is that research come about? Uh, obviously, years of experience and knowledge and insights have gone into building this. Can you take me through a little bit about how you've how you put this methodology together? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully you can see that this is actually my research universe, right? Yeah. And and so the cornerstone of it is the consumer surveys. So essentially, what we're doing here is we survey households on a very regular basis. Okay. Um, Fifty-two thousand households through the year, a thousand a week, right? And we ask a lot of quite searching questions about both their financial intentions, are they looking to buy, sell, uh, also their broader financial footprint. Uh, it's all run by a, a separate research company that um, does all the phone calls. I don't do the phone calls myself, but I receive that data on a weekly basis. And I pull information from various other sources too, because I've got other things like my focus groups and information from APRA and uh, you know the ABS and everything else. And also, public statements from the banks, but it all goes into what I call my core market model. That's the sort of the bit in the middle here. And then that feeds out into my mortgage industry reports and the uh, stuff I do online. But it's a rolling household that's the critical element, right? And if you sort of think about it, we can slice and dice the data lots of different ways. So we look at it in terms of different types of uh, households, different locations, and we have something which we call our segmentation. This is effectively looking at different types of households from young, from growing, from suburban, you know, exclusive. Yeah. So you get a bit of a feel of different types. Also, not everybody is a property active household. So there are some that are actually renting as well. So we include those in the modeling. And that allows us then to look at where we are, but also think about what may be happening at Ahead. So what's the scenario in terms of interest rates? Where are interest rates going to go, for example? What is the demand in terms of um, inputs from, for example, migration, those sorts of things? So all of that goes in the model. This core market model is the secret source that drives everything, right? Okay. And just to give you a bit of a sense, we take the mortgage stress data, which is how many households are struggling to pay the mortgage, the price trajectory, the history of the property uh, market in the particular area, the buying and selling intentions, how many people in our surveys are looking to buy or to sell or, or not. Uh, the migration data, which is a very importantly broader economic data. All of that goes into the core market model. We overlay our scenarios, and that then allows us to look at, at an individual level, postcode level, what may happen to home prices. And uh, that then leads us into the story of, okay, so once you've got that data, what you can then do is you can start 
analyzing and, and really getting into detail of, of, of what's going on. And I thought what it might be quite fun to do would be to look at a real example of, of some of the output here. Because, yeah. yeah, because this is this is effectively what you see at the end of the result. Now it's a bit complicated. Don't panic. It's 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 quite straightforward really. I actually looked at Shell um Shell Cove, Shell Harbor, right? So postcode two five two nine, which is a local example to us both. Now this is based on the December data, which is so the model was run at the end of the year. And, and so we start with how many households there are actually living in this particular area and how many are owning outright, 34% own outright, 40% are borrowing, that's a high number. So we've got a lot of mortgage holders. And we've also got some renting around 25% who are renting, right? So that's the first thing we see. And then we can actually look at those who are actually struggling. So one of the measures is mortgage stress. That's a cash flow measure, money in, money out. How, how are households coping? Are they actually... Um, taking more money out of their accounts each week than they're actually putting in. And if that's the case, they're in stress. If they've got a mortgage, they're in mortgage stress. And half of households in this postcode are currently in mortgage stress. That's more than 2,000, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of rental stress as well and a little bit of investor stress. So we take that data and then we can run some scenarios based on where we think interest rates and other things may go. We have three scenarios, the best, the base, and the worst scenario. The best case would say mortgage rates uh, will stay roughly where they are because the RBA isn't going to lift much more above 3.1. The base case is now mortgage rates are going to go up because the RBA is going to continue to lift uh, its interest rates for at least another couple of times. Worst case is rates could go a lot higher. Yeah. And then we look at what could happen over the 12 months, 24 months, and 30 months. This is a cumulative. So the best case for a house in this area, we might see a further 5% drop over the next 12 months, then a sort of a small drop the following month and a, a rise the third year, right? So that's sort of the best case. Yeah. But if, in fact, things go worse, then it goes pear-shaped, right? And so you could see considerable loss of value. And then you can actually say, well, okay, tell me about the type of property. Well, 71% of properties in this area are houses. That's based yeah. off the census. Some units. And then we can look at the, vac the, the vacant rates. So 4.7% were vacant in census last year. What the gross investment yields and net investment yields are like. And here it's interesting that whilst the um, gross investment yields are around 3.4%, once you take uh, costs of the mortgage into account, most people aren't making anything at all in terms of cash flow mm. in terms of this area. So net investment yields, I think, is a better measure. And then we look at things like their taxable income, this is based on the census data. And so we can say, okay, let's look at disposable income. Typical household in this particular postcode would have a disposable monthly around $6,000 a month. And on average, again, got to be careful about averages, but 42% yeah. or $2,600 are actually going on paying the mortgage or 38% of net disposable monthly income are paying the rent. So you can begin to see that you can build up a profile of a particular area. And then, of course, you can compare that with other postcodes and you can see different characteristics. So what I'm trying to get at here is to understand the degree of pressure that households have with regard to the cash flows, because mm -hmm. that's going to determine a lot of, and if you've got more stress, then it tends to put downward pressure on prices. Uh, if you've got less stress, the reverse is true. If you've got a lot of renters, then you have one set of characteristics, um, particularly if it's units. If you've got a lot of houses, different set of characteristics. So, so it shows you the importance of getting really, really granular to understand what's going on. But the critical bit is this price scenario piece, right? Because yeah. what it's trying to say is, look, at a granular level, whether it's a house or a unit, 
this is what could happen over the next little while. Now, I update these scenarios every month based on what might be happening with regard to what the, what the economists are saying about interest rates. And you, basically, yeah. there are lots of various, various yeah, uh, stories at the moment, which we might touch on in a second, right? Yeah. But it gives you it gives you a baseline to then figure out, you know, well, is it a good time to buy? Is it not a good time to buy? What should I be looking at? Who am I competing with? All of those things. Perfect. So when you take that methodology, one of the big things that comes out is mortgage stress. Yep. And uh, that's something that you've you've obviously had a lot of media commentary about because for the time that I've been broke, and that's six and a half years um, running our business, I've heard a lot, especially when you've been quoting the AFR around mortgage stress, the impact of rates, for example, arrears rates then kind of pops up and I can only look at our client base and go, we'll have very, very low arrears rate. This country yep. you tend to pay your mortgage first, you know, taxes, yeah, the rest. And yep. I guess you, you're at the coalface with this data and you, okay, the numbers say one thing, but household activity and actual impact. How well, do you find that that matches? Does the data actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's a very good question, but l- l- let's just look at the definition of mortgage stress, right? So yeah. I have a very clear definition and it's not default right? Stress and default isn't the same, right? So there are many different definitions out there uh, of, of what mortgage stress might be. Some say, well, if it's more than 30% of income mm-hmm. or taxable income, some others use underwriting metrics like um, uh, Roy Morgan, for example, they tend to look at some of the banking underwriting metrics. But I define it in cash flow terms. Okay. Basically what I say, so households have more outgoings, so excluding one-off discretion, if more money's going out, they got a problem because what it means is they've got to make choices about what they spend their money on and they can't spend on everything, which means they're going to actually have to hunker down somewhere. If they've got a mortgage, I say they're mortgage stressed because by definition, they prioritize X over Y, right? Investors, they'll have cash flow pressures, but potentially could be stressed investors. And I also aggregate it so I can look at it at a higher level. But I express it as a percentage of households, but also the count because large numbers of people with cash flow issues become issue, an issue. So so my definition of stress is I've got to make hard decisions about what I do with my money. So maybe they're not earning as much as they were. And of course, real incomes have dropped. If you go back to 2011-12 and track since then, real incomes after inflation have dropped for most people. So they're actually quite often earning less. On the other hand, we know that inflation is raging. So 7.8% was the large inflation number. So we know that people's cash flow is actually getting adverse Right, and in fact, data from the ABS out today, looking at, at living expenses, also are even higher, up above nine percent. So we know that people are actually struggling with 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 balancing all of the, those outgoings. And then they've got you've got the interest rate rise. People on variable rates are being hit. People with fixed rates will be hit at some point down the track. Now, I look at it holistically. So I say, okay, households who are in stress have a cash flow problem. The question then is, what do they do about it? Because of course, as you said, they prioritise paying the mortgage or the rent, yeah. almost above everything else. Right. But in doing so, they might borrow more on credit cards or get a buy now, pay later loan or a payday loan or mm. do something else. Or you know. But it, ultimately, this pressure is insidious because if, if, if incomes aren't rising in real terms, over time, this can create a problem. So then what I do is I then model off the back of that some default ratios based on what I've seen historically, and typically a few percentage of those in mortgage stress will ultimately default. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not seeing default rates particularly high at the moment, although they are rising. And I do expect default rates to rise a little more ahead because there are more people now in mortgage stress. And in fact, if you look at the uh, the mortgage stress data, which yeah. we can which we can do, 
Um, I've actually got the data here to show what's going on. Let me just show you this. So this is actually the December data. So I measure rental stress. So rental stress is now at 60% of households in rent have cash flow problems. That's a very significant number. That's almost, um, you know, what nearly 2 million households who are renting yeah. have difficulties, right? But rental stress is a problem. Mortgage stress, also a problem, 45.8% of households. That's more than 1.7 million households with a mortgage yeah. are having difficulty with their cash flows, yeah. right? And by the way, just for completeness, it's worth highlighting that the RBA says household debt ratios are still very, very high. We've got some of our household, highest household debt ratios in the world, right? So there's a, there's a set of pressures. Now, the question is, how do those pressures play out over time? You know, will the banks give people more leeway? Will people be able to get more income? Can they get an extra job, et cetera, et cetera? Or will they ultimately get to the point where they are unable to make all of these things work, at which point they might decide to sell? But what they do is they tend to sell before the bank comes knocking on the door or before they actually miss a payment because people are very concerned about not missing those payments. And of course, we have full recourse in Australia. So even if you decided to hand the keys back, you still owe the loan to the bank. So most people will therefore wrestle with this cash flow. But of course, by definition, if they're wrestling with cash flow, they've got less money to spend, they're going to be less confident, they're going to be less likely to um, you know, be a, a really strong economic dynamo for the economy. Now, there are other people who are not stressed and they're doing fine. And that's part of the problem. So the averaging of those who are stressed and those who aren't might look okay. But I'm interested in the marginal borrower, the one that has significant issues. And I think we will see defaults beginning to rise a little bit. But then I will also say that the banks are being very generous at the moment with trying to help people because the last thing the banks want are more defaults. Yeah, correct. And I think you've, you've nailed it, which is, I mean, eight consecutive rate rises. It's The intention was to cause some pain and hurt, and it's definitely yeah. had its impact because, we, again, what the coalface is talking to, to borrowers, you take a pie chart, there's finite income that's coming when the family's PAYG, expenses have gone up somewhere 30 40%. Something has got to give. Correct. Uh, and uh, I think we're at that that tipping point for a lot of families going, but what is going to give? Because I've got this non-negotiable mortgage that has got to come out and then we're going to live off the rest as well, which is inadvertently putting pressure on households. And let me just say, you're a mortgage broker. You will know this. Yeah. I'm very surprised that a lot of people have not kicked the tires on their current mortgage. Mm. And a lot of people are paying a lot more than they should be paying for the mortgage they currently got. Yes. Typically, one to one and a half percent above the best in breed in the market at any one time. Mm. I don't understand. Maybe you understand the psychology as to why people who are in financial pressure don't actually move heaven and earth to find the cheapest, best mortgage that's out there. But a lot of people still don't, right? Now, we've seen a lot of rise in refinancing. So as re interest rates are rising, refinancing is the only growth there at the moment. A lot of people are refinancing. But there are still lots of people who are paying more than they could or should for their mortgage. And I don't quite understand that psychology. Yeah, and I can I can probably give you some, um, some rhetoric on that. One is the pain to move. I'm like, there's, there's a there's – a, Perceived paperwork, correct. Perceived pain, right? I'm yep. like, the gain is there financially, but consumer behavior is now I've got to pick up a move by internet banking, and that seems awfully hard. That's one. Um, there's some, there are some mortgage prisoners. So now they've had a child, they're down to one income, and, and potentially yep. there's uh, they're limited with bank options, or they've just started a new business, and now they can't get lending. So there's some mortgage prisoners there as well. Loyalty uh, banks have 
bred loyalty and they're paying the loyalty tax, which is effectively what you're saying, the one to one point five percent premium. The loyalty. banks don't they don't they don't regard loyalty, they don't reward loyalty at all. Yeah. In fact, if you've held a an account at the same branch for a few, you know, bank for a few few years, you'll find you're paying a lot more than the new business. So right. you've got to shop around, right? Yeah, correct. Correct. I appreciate that. Uh, the big question that a lot of our clients will have is mixed messages around the rate forecast. And yep. again, I'm not holding you to this and want to be very, very clear that our discussion is always general in nature and not intended to give advice. Yep. However, you've got your finger on the pulse when it comes to here's, I guess, a lot of the predictions and forecasting, one from The Economist, two from some banks, for example, and just general hearsay as well. So what is your, I guess, all your your analytics pointed towards as a as a fairly good guide? Yeah, I mean, it is a very important question because of what happens to interest rates is is determinant of so many things that we've discussed. Mm. Um, the RBA will probably lift by twenty five basis points when they meet next Tuesday. I think that's pretty much baked in. The inflation number is way too high. Even mm. the weaker retail sales number won't, I think, offset that. So I, I think almost everybody is saying that's set. Certain. Mm. The question is, what happens after that? So there are some people like CBA who believe that there'll be 25 basis points, then they will hold for perhaps most of 2023 and then drop rates later in 2023 and 2024, right? And, and you know, that you could point to the Bank of Canada, which basically said, well, 4.5%, we're going to hold and then hopefully drop. Um, although they also said we might rise if things get a little yeah. bit different. So that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, there are uh, analysts are saying, no, 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 you can probably expect the cash rate to be above 4% because yeah. the inflation is so strong. Yeah. It's got very much embedded now. And we're seeing services inflation very strong. We're seeing more pressure on gas prices and electricity prices, food prices. Um, you know, So we're not at the end of this inflation thing, right? And And hopefully we'll see inflation come down naturally because of what's called the base effect. So if you think back 12 months, there were very significant rises. They're in the number at the moment. They'll drop out in a month or two. So there should be some down movement in terms of inflation, but the RBA is targeting 2 to 3%, mm-hmm. and we are at 7.8% or, or more, depending on how you measure it. And by the way, I think the way they measure it is understating the real inflationary pressures on real households, which is another thing. So my, my own perspective is... I think we're going to see probably another two or three rises from the RBA, perhaps February, perhaps May, and then maybe one later in the year as they wrestle with this inflation. I don't think you can bank on there being no further rises. The other external factor is what the Fed does. The Fed is going to meet um, overnight, you know, and we'll get the information tomorrow, Thursday, as to what is going to happen in the US. If the Fed lifts significantly, that's going to put upward pressure then and we've got the Bank of Japan meeting, the Bank of England meeting, um, New Zealand will be meeting a little later as well. That could all lift rates a little more. Why is that important? Because our rates are connected to international rates by the exchange rate. Yeah. And if we don't actually m- sort of mesh sufficiently, our exchange rate gets murdered. And that's a problem because that can import inflation back into the economy. So, so essentially, you've got to expect higher rates. The other point, of course, is that there are many people on these fixed rates. Yeah who haven't yet experienced any of the rises. And a lot of those people are still sitting on 2% mortgages thinking, oh, this is great, doesn't affect me. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, for many people, I think around June, July of this year, yes. they're going to see their rates go from 2% to 6%, right? Yeah. And that's a big impost, a really big impost. So one of the things I've been saying to people is, you've got to assume rates are going to go up and stay up. Therefore, prepare now. 
So mm-hmm. maybe start paying down the mortgage a bit more or put more money aside ready for those rate rises and prepare for that inevitability. And the you know, the Reserve Bank is saying something like 15% of households could actually end up in deep doo-doo simply because of these rate rises. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the RBA is sensitive to the debt profile and you know the, the wealth erosion that's going on at the moment. But they also do say they're not responsible for house prices, and they also say that um, they've got to deal with inflation. So the number one agenda item for the RBA is killing inflation. The lever they've got to do that, right or wrong, is lifting interest rates, which yeah. is why I think the rates are going to go higher from where they are. Yeah, I really appreciate your insight there as well. I think that is yeah front of mind for a lot of borrowers, whether you're an existing mortgage holder or whether you come into the market going building in cash buffers or being prepared as opposed to, um, hope and optimism trying to get you through mortgage repayments as well, which I think is very, very pertinent. <laughs> yes. The next part then, and again, we're not saying the Australian property market is homogenous, but then what it does for the impact of price uh, price growth. And I mm. think there's there's going to be a few winners off the back of that. This is maybe people have sat on the sidelines trying to get into the market, going well, softening market helps us maybe buy that property we, we can't afford. But there was one really good video that I watched of yours for first-time buyers, mm. which is borrowing capacity has dropped Yep. Than far more significantly, probably than probably prices have as well. So can you just take us and elaborate on that a little bit yeah. as well, Martin? Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is a really important message because I, you know, I speak to a number of people one-on-one through 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 my my conversations. And a lot of first-time buyers were saying, well, this is great because we're seeing property prices begin to ease back. That yeah. should make accessibility easier, affordability easier. But it's not. The reason is that at the moment, because of the rate rises, yeah, and because of the three percent buffer that APRA imposes on the banks. The amount that you can borrow now for a given set of income and expenditures has dropped. And it's actually dropped really dramatically, about 30%. Absolutely. And, and property prices have slid, you know, the latest from CoreLogic is saying, well, in some places, maybe 12, 13, 14%, Sydney, yeah. Melbourne, Brisbane as well, others less so. But that's not enough to catch up with the um with 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 the with the gap effectively in terms of that borrowing power. So, so borrowing power is way down. The second is that the um, HEM, the expenditure measures met- matrix, mm. is driven by costs of things. And the cost of things are going up. As we said, inflation is very high. So the HEM, which is the, the ratio that the banks use when they actually think about how much people can borrow, again, are going down. So as well as the interest rate problem, we've got the borrowing power problem related to HEM. So net-net, housing affordability for a lot of those first-time buyers is going way backwards. Mm. And that's a real problem. So I was talking to someone the other day who said, I'm really frustrated. You know, I've saved my 20%. I was ready to, you know, try and just about get in the market. And now prices are running down, but yeah. affordability is running further away. What do I do? Do I just sit and wait and hope that sort of it catches up? Um, well, um, maybe waiting is actually not a bad strategy at the moment because prices will probably continue to slide. I think personally that the borrowing power is the leading indicator of what may happen to home prices. So yeah. I mean, with the borrowing power released um, a little bit, that could actually turn things around. And maybe APRA will actually move from 3% to 2%. That could give a little a little bit of breath. But that's, that's the real problem. So a lot of people are being priced out even more than a year ago. Mm. No, thanks very much. Yeah, do not want to interrupt the thought, but effectively the market is how much can I will, can I borrow to offer for this property? And if everyone's – it's a level playing field, everyone's borrowing capacities have been impacted. So – the only levers really as a household is can you get more income or yeah. save more money as opposed right. to trying to... Or, 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 or are they a little bit less um, truthful about 
their state of play. And look, the fact is, we know that some people are actually, um, you know, go around the houses to try and actually get themselves into a property with a big mortgage. The problem I've got is a lot of people did that last year when interest rates were really low and yeah. when, in fact, um, you know, everyone was thinking, well, this will be fine because the uh, uh, the governor said, the RBA said, no, no rate rises till 2024. But rate rises have come. The thing that I was talking about for the last few years is mm. you can't assume that property prices are always going to grow very significantly and interest rates are going to slide very significantly at some point the worm will turn well unfortunately the worm has turned and a lot of people who are in the market are now caught because of their high commitments because the mortgage rates are going up a lot of new first-time buyers are trying to get in and finding it hard the other point is a lot of property investors are now finding that from a cash flow perspective mm. you know they're actually underwater because the cost of that mortgage um, are actually even if you offset all of the um, negative gearing and everything else it still doesn't necessarily work and with no capital growth Mm. And, and maybe actually a continued fall in capital values. Some property investors are now saying, well, maybe I should sell and you know release some of the capital that I've got in that property before I lose it. So we are, I think, in a very new stage in the property market. And my own view, for what it's worth, is yeah. it's unlikely that we're going to start to see anything like the rises that we saw through COVID. That was abnormal. That was created by government policy when they effectively – um, gave out home builder and you know all the other incentives and you could raise your superannuation, all of those things, right? And the RBA took rates, cash rate down to 0.1%, way too low. They should never have taken it that low. And so there was this massive sort of spike in momentum in property, artificially created. And by the way, not just here in Australia, but in many other Western countries now, they're all beginning to unwind. So property prices are sliding in the US, they're sliding in areas of the UK. Same problem, borrowing power is being released. So I think we should be taking a three to five year view here. Now, I'm not saying don't necessarily buy property, but buy property carefully. Mm. Buy property with the expectation if you are buying for owner occupation, you might lose some capital over the next little while. So some of that 20% deposit that you've saved, you might see that go in a paper loss because the value might drop. However, if you're thinking a three to five year view, that may not be too much of a problem because ultimately it'll, it'll pick up again. We will see property prices begin to move up again. There is still migration. There is still the potential for interest rates to come down a little. But I cannot believe that we're going to see another 20, 30 or 41% rise, I think it was in Brisbane, as we got through COVID. That was stupid, artificial, government created. And by the way, it was bad policy and it's bad for pretty much everybody in the country. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I think that that type of honesty straight shooting is um when we talk about what happens in the media i feel parts of that get plucked out and then <laughs> spot on and yes. showcase and that's probably why people then have that interpretation or perception of what you're putting out to the market going but martin north said i'm like i know what he said but there's very like dot 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 there's gonna be more to this sentence than what actually yeah, yeah, we got yeah. quoted Look, i always i always say multiple scenarios right you know i showed you the earlier one there are three scenarios right there's a scenario that says property prices will go sideways a bit and begin to rise right yeah. there's also a scenario that says property prices could fall quite a bit you know not dramatically but enough to be awkward and there's also a nightmare scenario where property prices could drop dramatically if we get a recession here in australia and we get a recession in other countries Problem is the media tend to just pick up the, oh, it's going to be all terrible, you know, worst case. Up. No, no, I'm a bit more sophisticated than that because I'm saying nobody can predict precisely how this is going to play out. There are too many variables. There are too many elements pulling in different directions. You know, we've got what the Fed will do. We've got the Ukraine situation. We've got fuel prices. We've got wage. You know, 
So, so, so the thing to understand is there are different scenarios. Now, what I say to people is when you're thinking about, you know, a property transaction, run for yourself the counterfactuals. What happens if? What happens if rates do rise by 3%? How will you cope? What happens if you lose your job? How will you cope? It's important that you've actually thought through that rather than just saying, well, the RBA says no rate rises, so I can absolutely leverage myself to to the max, and hopefully in five years' time my income will be up a bit higher. And mm. that the problem is people tend to be too optimistic. So what, all I'm saying is, arm yourself with the best analysis and tools that you can to make better decisions. And sometimes, not buying is actually a better decision than buying in a time of uncertainty. Yeah, that's no, a uh, real sage advice, Martin. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your candor and and your openness around this. And I feel like this we're we'll probably going to have to get you back on because this, this as this market evolves, as um, yeah, as the RBA, a lot of economists are trying to call that what they say is the soft landing, but uh, is that code word for something else, or are we actually truly getting towards either a spending recession or an economic recession? Like, which one is it going to be, and how does this look like? And yeah, I feel like no, if- nobody knows. Nobody knows at the moment. You, it is impossible to pre- predict precisely how this can play out, which is why you've got to play play scenario A, B, and C and just think about how it plays out. Right, But you cannot bank on the government rest, rescuing the property sector and interest rates coming down to 0.1% and property prices booming another 20 30%. Ain't going to happen. Yeah. Thanks very much. And yeah, it's very much the message that we're, we're advocating for, which is that was such a unique period in property in our history going no one could have seen a pandemic happen no one could have predicted where property prices were going to go and then having such historic low rates we are coming back into some type of norm normality as well yeah yeah i think it's great martin i want to say thank you so much you've been super generous with your time and your knowledge and your insights and um if you are a keen numbers buff and you want to check out the analytics that go in and behind uh, Martin's rhetoric, I'll include details to their website. You can check out the research, check out the methodology, and also some of the reports that they're putting out very, very consistently because you've got a lot of good content that's coming out, not just kind of narrow around the property market, it's broadly around macroeconomics and what's going on in a global sense All connected. and how that, how that fits uh, and connects to us as well at a local level. So uh, speaking of local, uh, I look forward to bumping in, in and around the area as well, Martin. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it and um, I look forward to getting back on at some point in the future. Great to talk with you and uh, see you soon. See you soon. Thanks very much. That's a wrap for another episode of the Australian Property Investment Podcast. I normally say if you, I think if you found that helpful, but I know in this situation you will have found that helpful. So feel free if you've got some burning questions that you'd love to have answered or some other thoughts that um, that are lingering for yourself, please feel free to reach out to us for a chat as well. And until next time, take care.